Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Hey, Shelly. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? No, I actually have zero desire to go to Niagara Falls. Yeah, don't bother. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of other like big national parks and nature preserves and things like that, that I would rather go see over Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. I did. I don't remember the name of these falls, but I, so like 20 something years ago, I lived in Brazil for a year as an exchange student and they have like Brazilian version of Niagara Falls and I forget what it was called and now I have to look it up but I went there it was beautiful but again just kind of crowded mm-hmm. and dirty as sadly places that are packed with people tend to be mm-hmm. yeah I went to Niagara Falls 18 years ago and I remember it very differently than how it looks well was it better? Way better. Iguazu Falls. Iguazu Ooh. Falls. That was the name of it. Um, very beautiful. Highly recommend. Yeah, I imagine, you know, it's funny because 18 years ago, so that's almost two decades ago, right? And just think of how many more people there are on the planet now than there were 20 years ago. And, you know, how much more tourism there is. It just looked like the, it looked like Vegas almost in a way. You know, I hate Vegas. I'm sorry, Las Vegas. I hate you. I just it's just can't. not my thing. It's just not your just not thing. thing. But the Red Rock Canyons outside of Las Vegas mm-hmm. are phenomenal, gorgeous, highly recommended. Is that in a yeah. national park? It might be a national park. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just remember my brother got married in Las Vegas. He had a big schmancy wedding there. And this was when Dan and I were first dating and this was his big trip out to go meet my entire family. That was the whole debacle. He and I were both like too many people. Vegas is way too much overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So we did some quick searching and found the Red Rock Canyons nearby, and it was maybe a half an hour drive outside of Las Vegas. It really wasn't far and just gorgeous hiking, desert hiking, but the colors in, in that I find the desert to be particularly beautiful. I really enjoy hiking through desert. It's just different. Never been, but it's on my list. Yeah. Well, uh, one reason to go back to Las Vegas would be to go see the Red Rock Canyons. I mean, I will definitely put it on my list. Yeah. Maybe not like Las Vegas proper. Yeah. Find some place else to stay. (laughs) Maybe go camping. (laughs) Camp. Yeah. Camping would be nice. It was a little disappointing. I mean, don't get me fall, get me, don't get me wrong. The Niagara Falls are beautiful. And I'm yeah. glad I went, but it just wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, or remembered it being like so. Right. It was interesting. Did you hear the new study that came out about tongue tie releases and GI symptoms in babies? I did hear about it. I would like to say, color me surprised, but I won't. I'll try to keep my snark to a minimum. So this study looked at the symptoms of GI distress and reflux prior to and two weeks following a tongue tie release and what they found. Now it is a small sample size, 84, 84 babies, but they found that all 84 babies had significant improvements in GI and reflux symptoms two weeks after release of ties. Right. And this is from the National Library of Medicine. Mm-hmm. like that to be recognize this isn't just made up by crazy lactation consultants that is tongue-tied I mean again like stuff that we've been kind of screaming from the rooftops for a long time now Mm. it's not dairy it's probably not dairy (laughs) probably not dairy but everyone's being told everyone is being told take dairy out of your diet or I feel like reflux is becoming almost the new colic. It's just sort of a general description for a whole host of problems. Mm. That's not actually addressing the real problem. Yeah. Or just for spitting up. Have you noticed that too? Like there are a lot of families who are very concerned that their babies spit up. Yes. 
I think that if their babies spit up, that means their babies have reflux. I right. Or every family will ask me, my baby spits up a lot. Is that normal? And I, I always make them qualify what's a lot because there's obviously there, there's going to be a threshold between normal and abnormal. Mm-hmm. But like usually it's very normal. Like maybe maybe a few times a day or something like that. Three to five. Yeah. 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 It's just interesting how different because I remember being concerned about things that now I look back and think, well, that was something silly to be concerned about. But it's funny how it, it kind of comes in waves with specific topics. Yeah. Like five years ago, it was the exact temperature that you need to keep your house at for your baby. Like, I just remember oh. all of a sudden feeling like people were very obsessed with what temperature they should keep their house at for the baby. Yeah. And that was like a big concern everywhere. And then, and then I didn't hear about it for a while. Well, because everybody heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> Parenting is the so weird. Spread. Everybody knows now. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, if your baby is tongue tied, and still, and you're not in pain while you're, while they're latching and they're gaining well, but they have horrible GI upset or reflux, and that might be tied to the tongue tie as well. Something to consider. All right. This week, we're going to be speaking with my friend Lo, and she is um, a CLC about to qualify for her IBCLC exam. Yay. And she's also a parent and she's going to be talking to us about parenting with a disability. But first, let's do our question of the week. This week's question is, my eight-week-old chokes while breastfeeding. Is this normal? Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, I will say it's not uncommon. It can It's um, a very common issue for babies that are having difficulty coordinating their suck, swallow, breathe. They will and as we say, common does not, not equal well, normal. <laughs> uh, I need that needs to be a t-shirt too, by the way. Yeah, really. So no, not okay that your baby chokes at the breast, but definitely something that is probably fixable with the help of a lactation consultant. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that your baby's in danger or anything. My baby's choked. I had like massive oversupply and overactive letdown. So they choked because they were getting water boarded every time they went to the breast. <laughs> but they were <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> <In> their lives. <laughs> it's like <laughs> because my letdown was so strong, it was like almost painful. So I would be like, here it comes. <laughs> start coughing oh, yeah. and choking and get sprayed in the face. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I had a very similar sort of letdown. I didn't have a massive oversupply, but I did have a really strong letdown and it was almost painful. I always thought that was kind of weird. Yeah. Severe pins and needles. Like when your hand falls asleep. Yeah. That's what it felt like. For, for me, it just felt like somebody was squeezing. <laughs> Here it comes. Oh man. I take the pins and needles off of that any day. Yeah, that was intense. Oh, Maureen, we just hold on. Yeah. So if your baby's not moving their tongue correctly, or if your flow is too fast, or, you know, there could be a variety of reasons why this could be going on. If it's like the only symptom that you're seeing and everything else is fine. It's probably nothing to worry about, but it's never a bad idea to get an assessment with an IPCLC. Never a bad idea. Never. All right. And next up, we will be talking with Lo. This week, we are speaking with someone that I've known for quite a while. We are speaking with Lo Nigrosh, and she is a mom of two kids, ages five and eight. And it was through her intense struggle to breastfeed her oldest that led her to birth and lactation work. She is now a doula, a childbirth educator, a certified lactation counselor who will be sitting the board exams to be an IBCLC in September. And she's also the host of the Milk Making Minutes, a podcast that explores breastfeeding through the lens of systemic barriers that listeners know their struggles are not their fault and their triumphs are the miracle which they feel they are. And she's here to talk to us about parenting with a disability. Hi, Lo. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Super excited to have you on here. You and I have known each other for quite a while now. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about yourself and who you are and your background? 
Yeah. So my name is Lo Nigrosh and I met you five years ago now when you were my lactation consultant for my second child. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Thank yeah. you. Full circle. I, yes. was a, I was already a CLC, a certified lactation counselor when I had you come. But just like we don't expect MDs to deliver their own babies or doulas to be their own doulas or, you know, pediatricians to be the providers of their own babies, we should not expect lactation professionals to provide their own lactation care mm-hmm. for themselves and their babies. I needed help when I had my second and I reached out to you and you came to my house several times. I, can, mm-hmm. I can't remember how many, maybe three or four. I think three. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I love that point that you said about like, you just <laughs> didn't you, everyone needs a lactation consultant, even if you're in the field, because yeah. I remember with, I wasn't an IBCLC when I had Hunter, but I was a little age league leader mm-hmm. and I had an IBCLC come to my house because I was like, yeah. clearly, and sometimes you don't want to be the provider. You just want to be the parent. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't want to assess your baby and assess your, you, know, you just want to enjoy being the parent and not think about all the technical stuff and have someone else do that for you. Yeah. I, um, I just had a conversation with somebody who became an IBCLC before she even had her first child. And she talked about all the pressure she felt when having that first child, because she felt immense pressure to be able to breastfeed. And then when things didn't go as expected, people in her family thought, well, you're the lactation consultant. Shouldn't you know the answers? And she was like, I don't know. I just want to feed my baby, you know? Yeah. And she had to reach out to people who were colleagues to get help because mm-hmm. she was the parent in that moment. She wasn't the professional. Right. And there is a big difference there. So since then I have um, pursued everything I needed to, to become an IBCLC. And actually I'll, I will be sitting now in two days for the board exam. Oh my gosh, this I is know. so exciting. I know. <laughs> yeah. Gee, I vividly remember that exam. And I remember like freaking out because I finished so fast <laughs> and I was like, I must have done. And the same exact thing for my, my NCLEX, my nursing exam. Uh-huh. I was like, I finished so fast and I was like, and the way that they do it, you know, and you're, you're, you're taking the exam on the computer and then it just abruptly shuts off. There's oh, no. no like, congrats, you're done. Or you finished. It's just like, you're going along and it boom, complete blank screen. And oh, that's it, good it's to know. very jarring. So to be prepared for that, we're just like, did I unplug myself somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> but no, they're just kicking you out. They're saying you've yeah. done enough. We can assess your skill now. Goodbye. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good riddance. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And what's interesting is I came to the profession through my own intense struggle with, with breastfeeding my first child. Mm -hmm. The second was not as intense a struggle, but I was, was living in a different area when I had my first. And so I saw another IBCLC many, many times. I actually saw several. I saw one IBCLC and then I also saw an MD who was also an IBCLC and I saw body workers, you know, I saw it all. And, but when I walked into that, uh, the second IBCLC I ever saw, I saw a hospital-based one for a little while. And then I saw private practice IBCLC. But when I walked into her office and felt so supported, despite never really figuring out everything that was happening with me, even looking back with all the knowledge I have, I don't really know. I was just one of those strange cases where you know, sometimes we can't figure it out. Um, But I walked into her office and I felt so emotionally supported. And I said to her, this is nine years ago now. And I said to her, how do I do this? This Mm -hmm. is what I want to do. So I've been on this path for about nine years, but as you know, it, it, you have to jump through some hoops. It takes a while. And I had to do, I had to repeat 40 of my hours of my education credits I had to repeat them once because they expired the first time, (laughs) you know, because there's a time limit. So anyway, I, you know, I came to the field through my own intense struggle, uh, with breastfeeding. And so, you know, some people come, I think to lactation because they have sort of an orgasmic experience with breastfeeding. And that was not my situation. 
I came to the field through intense struggle. And so I really relate to people who have intense struggles. Mm -hmm. And so I don't ever feel like I know all the answers. I just feel like I want to, yeah, I just want to help people feel validated and help people feel like whatever they're feeling is okay. Mm -hmm. And let's kind of try to figure some things out together and help you feel like you feel understood and feel heard. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's important for all parents, regardless of what the final outcome is. Right. Right. For the families I work with, I always tell them, like, I just want you happy feeding your baby and your baby, your baby growing and healthy. Mm-hmm. And whatever that ends up looking like, I, I don't care as long as you're happy and your baby is growing and healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard when the plan changes. And I think we have to help people grieve Mm -hmm. that too. Yeah. You know? Yes. So many boxes. I have like 20 boxes of tissues stored in my office (laughs) because so many (laughs) parents are crying in my office and then I cry. Everybody cries in my office. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And you're here to talk to us today about parenting with a disability. Yes. So I have a physical disability. I was born with a congenital amputation on my left foot. It's funny. I was in the Paralympics and because my disability is congenital, my teammates used to tell me that I could not call it an amputation, that I had to call myself not an amputee, but a mutant. What? Okay. With love. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They would tell me that. Um, Yeah. So I was born without my left foot. And honestly, I never used the word disabled to describe myself until, well, my path to using that word started when I played on the Paralympic team and I was surrounded by other people with disabilities. But I would say it's been even more recent, like maybe since I became a parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of always fought that term. Like even when I joined the Paralympic team, I had always played able-bodied sports and I was in my prosthetist's office um, and he said, hey, there's this really great opportunity. There's a new Paralympic team. It's the first year that there's going to be women sitting volleyball in the Paralympics and they're trying to recruit athlete, we would, uh, I think you should try out. And I was like, "Mm, no, I don't do Paralympics. I play able-bodied sports. That's not for me. And he said, you don't know what you're talking about. You need to call. The Paralympics is a big deal. And this was before you could see Paralympics on NBC. Mm -hmm. You know, this was before you saw Paralympians on billboards and on commercials and on cereal boxes. You know, now there's a lot more coverage of the Paralympics than there were was back in 2000. This was 2003. Mm-hmm. And so I went ahead and called just to make him happy. He Like he gave me the phone right there in the office. And they said, yeah, come on out. I had not played volleyball before, but I had played basketball was my primary sport. And I had like run cross country and really just to stay fit done some track just to stay fit, lifted weights. I was a swimmer, you know, just to stay fit. I was a lifeguard. So I went out to that first training camp and I cried after the first day. I hurt so bad. (laughs) And my coach after that first day said, you are not a volleyball player, but you are an athlete. It's your job to continue being an athlete. And it'll be my job to continue to turn you into a volleyball player. And so I joined the team. Now, since then, the the sport of sitting volleyball for women in the United States has really evolved. If I tried out at my level of skill that I had then, now I would never make the team. Mm-hmm. But because it was a new sport in the U.S. for women, I, I was just lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. So I competed from 2003 to 2006. And that was really the start of taking on the identity of being a disabled person. And then, you know, I left the team in 2006 and, you know, we, we won a bronze medal 
in Athens in 2004. We went yeah. to world championships in 2006. And then I just decided I was going to pursue some other things. Mm-hmm. And when I became a parent, I had a hospital birth with a midwifery team and I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And so the hospital policy where I was required that I be induced. I don't know if you see that in hospital Um, policy. I don't see it often written as required, but it's for sure encouraged and pushed sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I could not get out of it. I kept saying, you know, because I really wanted an unmedicated birth that happened spontaneously. And I kept saying to my midwifery team, can we just stop looking at statistics and just look at me? How am I doing? How is my baby doing? And they kept saying, well, you know, you're both doing fine, but we can't get out of this hospital policy. So I get induced having not had a single contraction. It was a three-day labor. I was pumped full of fluids for three days. And I did not anticipate that this would happen, nor did any of my care team, because no one was as familiar enough with a disabled body wearing a prosthetic leg to realize that having IV fluids for three days would mean I could not wear my prosthetic by the end. Mm. So not only could I not find positions in labor that were comfortable by the time I had to take my leg off and I ended up on an epidural. But that meant for the first week of my postpartum recovery, I was not able to wear my prosthetic leg while caring for a newborn. Wow. They must have really uh, shoved fluids into you. Yeah. Like it started, you know, I don't know, as soon as they started the Pitocin, which was not right away, we tried to go with the lowest interventions possible uh, first. Maybe it was like day two that we started the Pitocin, but two full days of Pitocin and two full days of fluids mm-hmm. and a pros- you know, my residual limb, it's so tight. The prosthetic has to be tight in order to stay on. So there's not a lot of wiggle room for swelling. Gotcha. And it was not until a few years later when I realized, oh my God, they just had no experience with disabled bodies giving birth. And I should not have been the one needing to anticipate that. Right. You know, I should not have had to been my care provider advocating for that. Somebody else should have thought, ah, you wear a prosthetic leg. Let's talk about what might happen with IV fluids and swelling. Because if you think about it, it makes sense that that would happen. And if in hindsight, it was probably like, well, that was obvious that that was going to happen. But if they'd never had experience with that, yeah, I can see where that would be extremely frustrating. Yeah. And so then, and my husband was actually, he's now my prosthetist. He was in school to be a prosthetist at the time. And so he was trying to reduce my swelling, Mm -hmm. but there was like nobody in the hospital who had the supplies he needed. So they were like going to different floors. Oh man. Like, he should have been my husband right. at the time. He should not have had to put on his like, I'm in prosthetic school hat, but there was just nobody else who was there to do the problem solving. So this was my introduction to parenthood. And I think that really catapulted me into being like, oh my gosh, I am a parent with a disabled body and I have to come to terms with this. And there are going to be times in my life when I am parenting more disabled or less disabled. Mm-hmm. And I have to figure out how to navigate this in a way that I feel comfortable with and in a way that doesn't make my kids feel like they have to take care Mm -hmm. of me, but also in a way that's like giving myself what I need. Because there are going to be times when like, no, I don't want to go on that long walk because I have sores Mm -hmm. on my leg. And also... Like, I don't want my kids to look back and feel like, oh man, we had to miss out on stuff because my mom was disabled. And so it really got me thinking about where is that line? Where is that line between giving myself the care I need, especially as I get older, right? Because when I was younger, it wasn't a thought in the world. As I get older, I'm now 41. Like there are times 
when I feel more disabled than than others. And, you know, as you get older, your weight fluctuates more, you know, so as my weight fluctuates, sometimes my leg feels better, you know, from one month to Mm -hmm. the next. And there are times when I can be more active and times when I have to slow it down. And that can be challenging as a parent to have to like navigate that without putting the pressure on my kids to have to make up for it. Mm And so I've been learning along the way how to do that and how to give myself the language for that and how to give my kids the language for that. And so what kind of things have you discovered as you're learning in this journey? Yeah. So first of all, I think this applies to anyone like, you know, people listening, they might think, well, I'm not disabled. So maybe this doesn't apply to me, but I think This applies to a broader audience, first of all, because kids are really curious about others, the term others in general. So whether it's like they see somebody who has a bigger body than them and they want to ask about it in the grocery store or they see somebody who's in a wheelchair or has a prosthetic leg and parents often don't know how to navigate those conversations, especially if a child is asking about it in a really vocal way. And the parent is concerned that you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. And then it also applies to the parent themselves. Like I also have migraines and I've had to navigate. How do I take care of myself when I have, when I'm down for the count with a migraine, but I don't want to like make my kids have to care for themselves Mm -hmm. while I'm down for the count. So I think if a parent is listening and think, well, I don't actually have a disability, just think like, when are the times when you need to provide self-care it's really critical for your own mm-hmm. health, yet it might interfere with like the things you feel like you need to do as a parent. So I just want to first preface it by saying that, that like you don't have to have a disability for this to impact. Right. Everyone you. gets sick, the stomach, like the right. flu, COVID, right? Right. So I, right. and I, for me, I mean, I, and I'm not a disabled person, but I had a hyperemesis through every single one of my pregnancies where oh. I, all I could do was lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling because if I moved, I puked. Oh, and no. I remember having those same feelings that you described having where it's like, you know, I've got two toddlers and I'm pregnant with my third and I can't move off the couch or I'm going to puke. And some days I could not even get them lunch because like every time I went to go move to the kitchen to try to make them something. I'm running to the bathroom and puking and then not wanting yeah. to move. I consider that, especially with my third pregnancy, I consider that one of the lowest moments of my life because oh, wow. I was feeling so shitty and mentally that takes a toll on you too. And then I had the guilt that I wasn't being a good parent to my kids and they right. were basically being raised by the TV and lucky if they got lunch, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what would you do in those moments? Oh my gosh. To be honest, I think I blocked a lot of it out of my memory because I was like, but I just did my best. I did my best. And Mm -hmm. if I, if, if the kids didn't eat lunch, I would beat myself up for like days. But looking back on it now, I obviously should have reached out for help. And I don't know why I didn't. I don't know if I felt like there wasn't anyone who was able to help me or if I was just so sick I wasn't thinking clearly Mm -hmm. um but yeah I just I just kind of did my best and I don't think it went very well so because I still have guilt like now now my oldest is 18 and I still think about like you know every time she has an emotional struggle I'm like oh my gosh is this because you were raised by Mm. tv for like three months and couldn't like you know parents like we blame ourselves for everything it's like oh my daughter's 18 years old and having a a rough day it must be because she was like borderline neglected when she was two you know she watched sesame street for three months when she was two (laughs) sesame street probably did a better job than i could have done for three months but i remember especially (laughs) the guilt was strong when i when i finally felt better and i was mm-hmm. up off the couch and I'm, I'm st- cause by then the house was like trashed. Like, and my mm-hmm. husband at the time was doing the best that he could. Like he'd come home and feed the kids, but you know, he was working all day and I started to clean the house. And, and I just remember 
Brooke saying, oh, mom, you're back. You're back in her, you know, young way. You're back, mm-hmm. you're back, which of course made me feel worse because in her mind mm-hmm. I had disappeared. I was yeah. there, but I wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. That's so hard. That's so hard. And, um, you know, I think it's important to just name for yourself like you just did. And for any listeners who have experienced something similar, I did my best. I was doing my best. I couldn't do anything more than what I did. And for some people, it's like not, it it might be postpartum, like maybe it's postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression, and they can't do any more than what they're doing because that's, that's really common. But some of the things that I've learned is I've listened to enough psychological experts that tell us like 30% having connection and good parenting 30% of the time is like all that we really? need for parents to turn out okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a percentage from the Gottman Institute which I have been clinging to. I was just going to say, I want to see that statistic so I can cling to it. (laughs) Yeah. The Gottman Institute, they have given this statistic and really it's like, it's not a hundred percent of the time that we have to be doing our best. It's like having that connection, even in marriage, because they're marriage experts. And it's, you know, that 30% number is really people that are killing it. It's like they're connecting about 30% of the time with their kids and with each other. Yeah. So first of all, it's not about perfection. It's about being good enough mm-hmm. is, is what I'm, I, I'm telling myself. And then I think about when I'm not able to be my best. I think about the times when I have killed it, you know? Like I think about those weeks when I've been like really doing fantastic and like I've taken kids on great hikes and we've been super active and we've gone swimming a lot or we've gone on snowshoe hikes or we got to go skiing. And I think, okay, they got a lot that week and this week we're watching movies, Mm -hmm. you know, or if I can't be super active because I'm uncomfortable and my leg isn't fitting well then I think what are the things I can do to connect with them, even though I can't be active. So we love reading. My kids could read for hours on end. So I make sure that we stock up on really good library books and I'll read to them as much as I can sitting on the couch. Or if I can't do that, we love to sit and snuggle and read books and watch pop. I mean, watch movies and Mm -hmm. eat popcorn. So like, that's a form of connection because I'm with my kids and we're doing something we like to do. And you know what? Sure. We can watch Frozen 2 for the one (laughs) millionth time. And they're not going to think, oh man, my mom let me watch a movie too many times. They're going to think my mom sat on the couch and watched it Mm -hmm. with me. So there's a difference there between saying... Like, yeah, go watch TV and hey, let's, and sometimes I, I do that. I do that a lot. Like, hey guys, I'm busy, go watch TV. But there's a difference between saying that and like, hey, I'm like too spent or I'm hurting too much to do anything but connect with you on the couch with popcorn mm-hmm. and a movie. But I can do that. So like, let's make that happen. And don't you think that that's like healthy? like a healthy learning point for your kids, right? Like nobody can be on, 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 on all the time. Nobody can be 100% all the time, including them. And they're going to learn that as they get older, but because you have shown them what a healthy balance is between, okay, now I can be on hundred percent today, but I need to do some self-care the next day. So like, okay, I can't do what we did yesterday, but I'm going to you know, sit on the couch and watch movies with you. They're learning like healthy habits of self-care and balance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's important for them to see that we take care of ourselves and that we don't just push through when we're in pain or when we're hurting and that we listen to our body's signals. We want our kids to learn Mm -hmm. that. And when my kids tell me they have, I've suffered from migraines since I was five years old. <laughs> so some of my earliest memories are migraines. So when my kids tell me they have a headache, I believe mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I say, oh, man, I'm really sorry. What do you need? Do you need water? Do you need to lay down? Do you want me to snuggle with you? Do you need some Tylenol? Like, I always offer that because I want them to trust their body signals Mm -hmm. when they say they're hurting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So they believe me when I say I'm hurting and I believe them when they say they're hurting. I remember when I was a very young, my sister had some sort of stomach bug. And so we were home and I was telling my mom, I am not feeling well. Like, I think I feel nauseous. And I remember my mom didn't believe me. She thought I was faking because Mm. my sister was getting all the attention. And it was like all day. I'm like, I, I, I'm not feeling well. I'm not being, no, you're fine. You're fine. You don't have a fever. You're fine. And then when my stepfather came home, she talked to him about it. And they actually sat me down in the living room to lecture me about lying, about being sick. <sighs> And as they're starting the lecture, I puked all over the <laughs> Yes. Going forward from that day, my mom never doubted me. If I told her that I was not feeling well, she's like, I believe. Yeah. And it, it hurt a little that she thought I wasn't being honest. I mean, she wasn't trying to be mean yeah. or anything. My mom was. But, no. she, you know, yeah. I remember even to this day, I get very, very defensive if I think someone is saying that I'm not telling the truth. Like I get extremely mm-hmm. defensive and I think it stems back to that. Cause I remember even to this day, that feeling like, no, oh, like, why aren't you believing me? I'm not lying about this. And mm-hmm. then I remember also feeling very justified when I puked all over them. So that was good. <laughs> yes. See, yes. I told you, I really yeah. am sick. <laughs> yeah. And like when my kids are sick, like I'm the same as you. Like I always believe them and our little sick ritual is they lay on the couch with a blanket. They watch TV with the, the, we call it the puke bucket nearby. And, you know, I just hang out with them and bring them food and stuff. And like my oldest is 18 and she also gets really, really bad migraines too. Um, mm. But when, when Brooke isn't feeling well, she will put herself on the couch with a blanket like she'll just do it herself because she's learned like this yeah. is what we do in this family when we're sick and this is what makes me feel safe when I'm not feeling well this is what makes me feel loved when I'm not feeling well yeah that's amazing that she's learned that over time that that's what yeah. she can do take, some, take a time out stop doing her homework edge out in front of the tv mm-hmm. yeah I had a bad sore on my residual limb underneath my prosthetic for several weeks this summer and I was really afraid that it was going to get get so infected that I was going to need to seek medical care, which has happened to me in the past. And so I was really trying to tend to it. And usually we do a lot of swimming in the summer, but I didn't want to swim in lakes where it could get exposed to bacteria. And then usually I swim with my leg on. Uh, I used to not when I was younger, but now that I'm an adult, I do because it's a lot easier to manage the kids and manage all the stuff I have. And so I was telling my kids, uh, you know, you can go swimming. I will watch you from the side, but I'm not going to swim right now. And this is why I'm managing the sore I have. So I am happy to take you. I'm happy to sit on the side and watch you. I'm happy to play in the sand with you, but I'm not going to get in the water. And I love swimming. So it was, it was hard for me not to swim, but this was another example of me setting a boundary and saying, I need to do this for myself. And then once it finally did start to feel a little bit better, I decided I would swim, but I wasn't going to swim with my leg on because it meant the liner of my prosthetic stayed wet. And then that was like wetness against my leg for like hours. And so then I decided I was going to swim, but I was going to swim without my leg on. And that was actually pretty interesting for me because I'm very open about my prosthetic. And normally if a kid at a playground comes and asks me about it, I'll show it to them. I'll take it off. I ask if they have any questions. The kids will always ask, you know, answer their questions about it. But there's something really vulnerable about being at a beach in your swimsuit, walking around without it. But I was taking it off to swim so that it wouldn't get wet. And that I felt more vulnerable than I have in a long time, but I decided to do that for my self-care. And it was interesting because my kids were both like, why are you taking your leg off? You never do that. And I was like, yeah, I need to do this for my own care because I don't want this to get infected. I felt like that was a really good reminder to myself and to them 
that it's okay to be vulnerable in front of people. And it actually, this is just my body and it doesn't matter what other people think or what they see, or even if they ask me about it, this is what I need to do to take care of myself. And you guys have questions and other people might have questions about it. And that's okay. And it's not going to be like this all the time, but this is what I need Mm -hmm. for now. And just being okay with feeling uncomfortable about it and telling them, yeah, I actually don't feel super comfortable, but I'm still going to do it because I want to swim. And this is what Mm -hmm. I need to do to be able to swim. And sometimes, you know, we sit with our discomfort and, Mm -hmm. and that's part of life too. Yeah. Can I just say, I think it was like the, it was either it wasn't until the second or the third time that I went to your house that I even noticed that you had a prosthetic leg. Yeah. yeah I didn't yeah. know you were wearing jeans at the time because it was the weather, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a good point. I remember reading, uh, no, I can't, I'm trying to remember if I read it like a story or if I heard it on the moth radio. I don't know if you know that podcast. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I love it. Mm-hmm. I want to say that I heard it on the moth radio. But it was this woman was telling her story. She had a prosthetic arm and she had a baby and she was determined to always wear the arm around the baby. I guess she didn't want her child to feel ashamed that he had like a disabled mom. So even though mm. up to that point, she didn't really wear her, her prosthetic around the house. When the baby was born, she made sure to wear it all the like she didn't really want to take it off. And it was the kind of prosthetic that mm. could never get wet. And she just remembers like trying to change the baby's diaper and struggling to do it with one arm and the prosthetic arm. And then she's trying to um, clean the baby's bottom, but not get the arm wet. And then at one in the baby screaming and she's crying. And at one point she was like, fuck this, hook off mm-hmm. her arm. And she changed the baby's diaper. And she said that was the first time as a parent that I felt like myself. Mm. And I just thought that that was so true. Really eye-opening story like things that we don't think about but I loved I loved that story and that you know the even when she was telling the story you could hear the relief in her voice when she's like I just took it off and then I was like and I was able to change his diaper and he stopped crying and and then at the end she's like now I wear my arms so infrequently that when I put it on her son is who's older now was like oh are we going somewhere special like he always thinks they're going somewhere uh-huh. special because she, <laughs> his mom has her arm on so yeah right yeah yeah my kids um they'll say my mom is disabled and um they'll tell people why I'm disabled my daughter likes to wear my prosthetic leg my prosthetic socks and pretend that she has a prosthetic leg my son used to do that when he was younger too and my husband's a prosthetist, so they're kind of immersed in the world of prosthetics. And so I, I feel like they're really well versed in disability. And actually, I've been touched because when I was growing up, it was really hard to find books, for instance, that featured kids with prosthetics. And now you you have to seek them out. Like most of the time, if there's a kid that features a kid, um, if there's a book that features a kid with a disability, they're in a wheelchair. But I have intentionally tried to seek out kids that have prosthetic legs in like fiction books at the library. And then one day we went to my husband's prosthetic office and he had a Barbie doll that had a prosthetic leg. And he said they keep them there for new amputee kids to give to them. And I, like cried because if I had had something like that when I was a kid, I don't know what that would have done for my well-being. Cause we didn't, you know, like I said, I never used the word disability to describe me. And I think it would have helped to just have some sort of connection to the disabled mm-hmm. world growing up. And I think my parents did a pretty amazing job given the resources they had and given the climate that I grew up in, in the eighties, you know, like there wasn't this feeling of like body positivity and, you know, yeah, right. Owning the parts of your body that um, are different 
and there weren't as many support groups and support resources as there are now. And my my dad always had like a really great sense of humor about my disability. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the upbringing I had. But my children, I think I have intentionally brought a lot of as much exposure to the world of disability as I could so that they feel well-versed and it's not a taboo topic. Mm -hmm. And that way, when other people, when they see other people asking me, they don't feel defensive or they don't feel sad or upset. It's just, they understand that people recognize that there's a difference. And often when there's a difference, people are curious and want to know Mm -hmm. about it. And then they become involved in helping educate that person about my difference. Right. What's, do you think there was like a specific point where you realized that your kids realized that you had a disability? Mm. You know, it's funny. I uh, knew this guy years ago when I was in my early 20s. He was American, but his parents were from India. And his dad had a very strong accent Mm -hmm. from India, but he had an Oklahoman accent. Studied linguistics in college. That was, that was my degree. And I used to say, can you hear his accent? And he would say, not at all. I can't hear it because I've always grown up. Just, that's just my dad. That's just his voice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with my kids. I think they just are so accustomed to me being their mom and this being my body. And we've just always talked so openly about it. Now, as far as understanding disability, I think my son has a stronger awareness of that as a nine-year-old than my daughter as a five-year-old at this point, because we've done a lot of reading about that. I think he also has a stronger awareness of systemic racism Mm -hmm. than my daughter does because we've done a lot of reading about that. I think he has a stronger awareness of, you know, other injustices than my daughter does. So the way that disability impacts people, I think my son has a stronger awareness than my daughter. I think they both understand that my body is different than other people's, but I think they both kind of recognize that my body is different. I don't think either one of them see it as a negative. Although, you know, my son did, he has said a couple of times, I, I sometimes wish that my mother wasn't disabled, Hmm. you know, and in my family, I feel like all feelings are welcome. So I'll just say, yeah, tell me about that. What, you know, what's it like? And he'll just say, I don't know. It's just kind of, you know, you're different. And sometimes there are times when you don't want to do things or can't do things. And I'll say, yeah, that must be, that must Mm -hmm. be hard. But, you know, I don't think that's any different than if you have like a parent with depression or a parent, right. You know, migraines too, you know, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he may realize one day that actually my migraines get more in the way of my life than my physical Mm -hmm. disability at this point in my life. I don't know what will happen as Mm -hmm. I age. But at this point, that might be mm-hmm. the case. But, you know, it's it's okay that he says that. And it doesn't hurt my feelings because those are his feelings to have. And I want him, I'm, I, I want him to know that as his caretaker, I can yeah. handle it. I can handle that he yeah. thinks that. I love that. Yeah. For those out there listening who do have young children who might ask, about a person's disability in public, because that is a reaction that a lot of parents will have, like, don't stare, don't ask questions, you know, you're being rude. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what I've heard from other disabled people in my life is, you know, kids are curious, they become afraid of what they don't know, let them ask their questions that they can feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. with it. Is, Is that something you would agree with? Or do you take a different approach? Yeah, I think, you know, every person is an individual, so I can't speak for every disabled person out there, but most people that I know who are disabled and me personally, I absolutely don't mind fielding questions. So, and in fact, children are usually way less awkward than adults. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So they usually come up and they say, hey, what's wrong with your foot? What is that on your foot? Mm-hmm. Or adults are like yeah. trying to like avoid looking at exactly. your foot. <laughs> they want to look. They're giving you the side eye. They're trying to look, but they're yeah. not. Or they're saying Shh, really loudly. Don't talk about that. And so absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the parents that I see navigate this conversation really well, like if a shy, a child is feeling a little bit shy, but wants to know. I've seen parents help their child walk up to me and say, hi, my daughter saw your foot and she was wondering if you would tell her about it. And I'm always happy to have that discussion. And usually I I offer to let them touch the prosthetic if they want to touch it. If I'm in a place where I can take it off, I will usually say, would you like me to take it off so you can see what's underneath? Sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. Sometimes they're too afraid of what's underneath. And I totally get that. And um, I never force that on a child. But um, I usually start by asking, like, how many feet were you born with? And they'll usually tell me two. And then I'll say, yeah, I was only born with one. And so I have medical providers or I'll usually say doctors if they're really young who give me this so I can have two. Um, And that way, you know, I ask if they like to run, if they like to ride bikes, if they like to climb and they say yes. And I'll tell them I like to do those things, too. And having this helps me to do those things. Because it's very down. It's like very down to level two. If I'm saying that right, you know, appropriate, I guess, is what. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on the age, I change. And then I'll ask if they have any questions, Mm -hmm. any further questions. And, um, you know, I definitely give them the opportunity to touch it and, um, and ask any other questions. And most people, you know, and same thing, if you see a wheelchair, we noticed your wheelchair, we were wondering if you would tell us about it. So that way it's an open-ended question. It's not like what's wrong with you. Mm You know, it's like, could you tell us about your Mm -hmm. wheelchair? Could you tell us about your prosthetic leg? Could you tell us about your cane? Right. You know, could you tell us about your thick shoe? Then it's just an open-ended question that shows curiosity without being Mm -hmm. offensive. I love that. Mm -hmm. And then if the person doesn't want to, they might say, well, not today, or I'm busy, or... I'm running off, but they don't have to say, you know, they don't have to be rude in their response either. They could just say, no, I'm not going to tell you about Mm -hmm. it today. Love it. So you've meant, you've talked about how um, you've had to work hard to give yourself boundaries for self-care and what other ways has parenting with a disability changed how you parent or influenced how you parent your kids? Yeah. So um, the other thing I'll mention about the self-care piece is I would say, I think this might be the case whether or not I had a disability, but I really had to kind of lower my standards a little bit. Like I'm totally fine with going to Trader Joe's and buying bags of frozen vegetables and bags of like frozen meals or having a frozen pizza always at the ready so that if I'm having a really low energy day and I don't want to stand around and cook, that that is available to just throw in. Or the example you gave about being stuck on the couch and, you know, kids need to fend for themselves. My kids sometimes eat microwave popcorn and chomp on Mm -hmm. an apple for lunch, you know, and my kids are a little older than toddlers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're able to grab that. Um, the example you gave your kids were toddlers. So I'm okay with having those days where I say, all right, kids, you are fending for yourselves. And sometimes I have stricter screen time than other times. So when I'm having high energy days, I know that we're going to have less screen time. And when I'm having low energy days, I know that I'll make up for more screen time on another day. And I'm just going to give myself a break and let them have more screen time. And I just know 
that we're doing fine. I track our hours outside with the 1,000 hours outside movement. We've already had over a thousand hours oh, wow. outside. This wow. Year, and it's only September. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. So we're doing yeah. great. You know, that's one way I can pat myself on the back. It's okay if they play extra mm-hmm. Minecraft, you know, mm-hmm. like they're going to be fine. If I look at my own screen time, I still think I'm a smart and intelligent person. And I also spend a lot of time on mm-hmm. my phone. So, you know, I just give myself a little grace in those areas when I'm feeling low energy. So that's, that's one way that I can think of just right away. And I, I used to love to cook before I had kids. I don't love to cook. Yeah. That kills my joy at cooking. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't, I just do easy stuff now. And I, I don't even have any guilt. You know what that reminds me of when COVID first hit and the schools shut down and everyone was working from home. You posted a video on Facebook. I <laughs> must have, I swear, I must have watched it like 10,000 times. Like I sat there and rewatched it and, and then I saved it. And anytime I was like having a bad day or feeling bad about myself, I went and watched, like it was, it was great. And it was you saying, and you were so, it was like the perfect video. It was like, um, do you want to know how you like homeschool while working from home? And then you just went through your house and you're like, Oh, you want to spill water all over the bathroom and then cover color on the walls with like bath crayons. Yeah, that's fine. You can do it. You you just walk through your whole house and it was like pretty much a disaster. Right. Cause that's, and you're Uh like, this is how you do it. You become okay with, you know, things becoming a little bit of a disaster and don't let perfection get in your way. It was the best. And it had so many likes because it was something that so many people needed to hear at that moment. And you just did it. I mean, I was cracking up laughing through the whole thing because you were just like, oh, you want to rip the heads off your Barbie dolls and throw them in? You know, it's like, sure, we can do that. We can do that. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I home I still homeschool my kids, although I will say this year for the first time, this is the first week it's starting, I decided to put them in like an outdoor homeschool program. They'll be gone 3 days a week. So again, I felt like I needed an adjustment for this year for my own sanity, and so I made an adjustment. So so taking each day and each week and each semester as it comes is like, it's, I need that as a person with a disability. So whether you have a chronic illness, whether you have a, you're a person with a disability or whether you're just a parent trying to get by just because it was working for you this year, doesn't mean what you were doing is going to work for you next Mm -hmm. year. So I have always homeschooled my kids from the very beginning, even before COVID. So I made that video right at the start of COVID because I had always worked from home and I had always homeschooled my kids. And I was like, okay, people need to see that people who work from home and homeschool their kids, their house is a disaster, like 100% (laughs) of the time. But I make adjustments along the way. And this year I was like, you know what? I think the kids and I, we need some space from each other. I'm not quite ready. I like having the flexibility of homeschooling. I don't want them in full-time school all the time, but I found an outdoor homeschool program that they were, they're able to go to a few days a week. And that's the adjustment I'm making this year for our sanity. I don't have to be quite as active. I don't have to feel guilty about screen time as much. I can still focus on my own career goals and they're happy as clams in their outdoor homeschool program. So, yeah. So that's another thing is you just take each day, each week, each month, each year, and you reevaluate. As you minute need to. each hour. Each... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some days I feel like it's down to the minute. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Seriously. Seriously. And then, like, the final thing well, I don't know if this is the final thing or not, but we kind of mentioned maybe bringing mm-hmm. this up. I'm now that my son has some neuro neurodiversity himself and I've been able to take some of the lessons I've learned about having a body that is different and helping him apply some of the same language to having a brain that mm-hmm. is different 
So one of the things that comes along with his neurodiversity is he has a, he has a, a very visible motor tick. He shakes his head and strains his mm. neck. I've started to notice that some of his peers will ask him what he's doing. Why does he keep doing that? And we were with some other homeschool kids and one of his dear friends kept asking him why he was doing that. So after the play date, we got home in a moment of connection. I asked him, Hey, did it bother you when your friend kept asking you? I noticed your friend asked you why you're doing this. And I only heard him ask one time. And he said, well, it didn't bother me except that he asked me a bunch of times. And I said, ah, and I said, have you ever noticed that people ask me about my leg? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, so I have some experience with this. You know, people notice that I'm different and people are starting to notice that you are different. Would you like some advice about mm -hmm. this? And he said, yeah, maybe. And I said, you can just tell him that you have a brain difference and your brain difference is causing you to make that motion. And it's a way that you're getting sensory input to your body. Mm -hmm. And you're just different. And that's the way that your brain shows. It's one of the ways your brain shows that you're different. And I, and I asked him, how would that feel to you if you were able to say that? He said, yeah, I think that would feel good. And I said, and remember that just like I'm different, I have a physical difference in my body that lots of people see. We're all different in some way. And this is a difference that you have. It's in your brain. And people are now starting to see that difference because it's coming out through this motor tick that you have. And so it felt really good. He was like, yeah, that's true. We are all different, aren't we? And so it felt really good for me to be able to say, yeah, we all have something. Mm. For some of us, it's really visible. For other people, the thing that is different might not be so visible, but here's some language you can use to try to help people understand that you're different in this way, but it doesn't mean that you're mm. bad or that the difference is bad. It's just something that's unique yeah. to you. Yeah, I love that. And how lucky is he that he has a parent that can get that perspective, you know, based on your own experience and connect with him that way? Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> It's, it's little by little. Don't, you know, if you're listening to this and you think every conversation I have with them sounds like that, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> I have hope for, for each future generation. I feel like the kids nowadays, like I remember when my kids were little, my, one of my kids got hit by another child somewhere. I can't remember where the details are fuzzy. And she was upset and telling me and her older sibling, like, oh, you know, so-and-so hit me. And the first question that her, her sibling asked her was like, oh, well, you know, does he have autism or something? Like trying to like say, well, maybe mm. that's why, maybe that's why, you know, mm. instead of like, oh my gosh, he was so mean or, you know, why would he do it? It was like coming from a place of understanding where some people are different and it, it causes them to behave differently. And maybe that's what happened. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Seeing the good inside of all people and recognizing that sometimes, you know, sometimes people get triggered by, by un, unseen mm -hmm. forces, yeah. you know, and calling that out. Yeah. Well, I think this was such an important conversation and I love all the advice and the tips that you gave. And I just like talking to you in general. Hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Do you Shelley. have any yeah. like final thoughts you want to share about this topic? I just encourage people to think about disability, uh, you know, kind of broadly. You There are visible disabilities and there are invisible disabilities. So just like you brought up that example of the child with autism, when you see a person struggling, whether they're a grown-up person or a child, you don't know what's under the surface. And so it might be that there is, you know, something that is um, making it difficult for them. Mm -hmm. And so if we can teach our children to view other people with the same compassion that your daughter brought to that conversation, 
you know, I think that'll go a long way in helping us to regulate ourselves and helping our children to regulate themselves. And I encourage listeners to do what I have been trying to do, which is check out books from their local library that feature diverse characters, characters who are diverse in both physical disabilities and in neurodivergence. Um, Even if you don't have anyone in your family who has a physical disability or who is neurodivergent, because that can go a long way in bringing that empathy and compassion to your kids and giving them the language they need to talk to people who they encounter. Cause they will, yeah, um, they will. with, um, you know, we're everywhere. Mm-hmm. I see, I see people with prosthetics everywhere. Like <laughs> even in my small town, I'll be like, Whoa, there's somebody at the gas station. And I get this sense of like, Oh, there's somebody like me. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, checking out, books from the library, fictional books that just feature characters um, with disabilities can go a long way in bringing that understanding and giving kids the language they need. I especially like the books where, you know, there's a, there's someone with a disability, but the book is not about their disability. It's just, it's not really even, it's represented, but it's not really even spoken about because that's what really normalizes Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're reading one, right? It's a chapter book called Avery Green Detective Sleuth or something. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, have you read that one? Mm-mm. It's a child who doesn't have arms. So she does everything with her feet. But it's just like a, she's a, she's like a goofy detect, like fifth grade detective. Yeah. And it doesn't have anything to do. I mean, she talks about not having arms, but it's not the purpose of the book. Right. You know? Yeah. It's just like a small piece of the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. that. Yeah. So where can people find? So you have your own podcast um, and it's called the Milk Minute, right? The Milk Making Minutes. Milk Making yeah. Minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So the Milk Making Minutes explores breastfeeding struggles and triumphs through the lens of systemic barriers. So people, the the heart and soul of the podcast are people telling their, their breastfeeding experiences, both the like good ones and the bad ones. And my hope is that both the storytellers and the listeners walk away from the experience and from listening, feeling like having a feeling of, wow, my struggles were not my fault. Mm-hmm. And my triumphs really were the miracles they felt like they were. Because there are so many forces that make breastfeeding so challenging. Mm-hmm. Love it. And you can find it on like Apple, Spotify, yeah, all of the major ones. Okay, all of the major. And where can people find you online? Um, I'm Lo Nigrosh, N I G R O S H, on Instagram, and that's the major place you can okay. find me. Great, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking with me today. Yeah, thank you, Shelley. This has been awesome. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening.